from a scale perspective in Canada. There haven't yeah. been as many phenomenal exits where there's been like significant amount of wealth generation in Canada. I think that that is often sort of a, a seed for large scale funds like you see out of the US if you look at, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, like all of these guys, like we came from major exits from major, major companies yeah. out yeah, of the yeah. States. We don't see that in Canada quite as much. And I, I just, mm. that, that might be one of the sort of influencing okay. factors is we haven't seen, and it sort of leads me to the next challenge, we haven't seen much scale at Canada, which should then help feed the earlier stage ecosystem. And I think that in, in my opinion, Canada actually has more of a scale up problem than a startup problem. What happens in 10 years when you don't have juniors that have learned how to actually analyze and challenge assumptions and think really critically about a right. business? Like if we look at our careers so far, it's like we've gotten to where we are because we've had that time like in the weed, understanding it and really developing sort of a bit of an intuition or a sense around where you need to be paying attention. If you don't have the ability to sort of learn that and like develop that scar tissue what happens in 10 years when no one has that welcome to the generation hustle podcast the show where we share the amazing journeys of founders investors and operators making an impact in tech i'm your host Amin, and this is episode 99 on this episode you'll learn what the role of cfo is how technology is impacting the finance function and the best practices for managing your business in today's environment. Today, I share the floor with a true trailblazer in the world of finance, a visionary leader, and all-around amazing person, Carla Matheson. She is a former CFO of Tiny Capital and now runs her own consultancy at CSM Insights. She is also a board member at Tiny and Nano One. Outside of work, Carla is a huge fan of nature and winding down and enjoying the smaller things in life, something we should all strive for. So let's jump right in. Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 99 with Carla Matheson. How's it going? Going well, thanks. How are you? Doing great. We just alluded to this right before recording, but this is my first finance executive on the show. And it's funny because I've been working in finance my whole career. So I feel like I've let myself a little down there. Haven't uh, had one of my own kind on the show before. Well, this is my first podcast too, so we'll work through it together. Awesome. Sweet. So, you know, we always like to start off the podcast with kind of understanding um, what led you down a career path related to finance, but also tech, because you've had a variety of experiences. And so I found that really interesting. Also, shout out to Alice, who made that introduction. So um, that's a big thing for us today. So could you maybe walk us through those early day influences so the audience understands how you got to where you are today? Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess going back to university, I actually started out um, in education. I was going to go be a teacher. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, as you can tell, I didn't get through that. But I was working for uh, a family at the time as a nanny. And then they were super entrepreneurial. You know, her dad was like one of the sort of early real estate guys here in Canada that brought a couple of the American companies up. Uh, that family had like a bunch of businesses as well. I quickly sort of migrated away from the children and started working yeah. more on their some of their business stuff. Uh, so they they were hugely influential to me. And one summer, you know, he came to me and he's like, "You know, are you sure you want to be a teacher? Like, you kind of have this stuff on lock and pretty good at it, and you've got like a brain that sort of works in that way." I see with the kids, like you do a good job and everything, but like feel like this is maybe where you should go. Mm. Um, and that was that was a huge influence to me. And that was actually one of the pieces that sort of made me reconsider what I was doing and change paths. And like, you know, my my family had a, a small business growing up and that kind of thing, too. And I was always sort of like involved with um, with the operations and the the finance side of things and really enjoyed it, but didn't really know what an accountant did or or whatever. Like my dad right. was a, a CPA, but worked for the government. So totally different. I never want to do that. But in seeing what entrepreneurs do, it's like, oh, these people are doing some really cool stuff. I want to be there in a role that like probably is more supportive because I'm not particularly creative. But um, that's kind of what set me on the path, actually. Yeah, so, no, that's fascinating. I think I'd love to double down on that, maybe that interaction you had with uh, that individual. 
Would you say without this person that Carla wouldn't be Carla today, uh, like the finance executive today? Um, I would say that's probably a really fair statement. Like I would probably be, you know, teaching third grade somewhere. <laughs> and where, where's the level of confidence or um, do you feel like that individual just trusted you uh, to kind of give you that chance? And how important was that for you to kind of be that catalyst or maybe mentorship that that was provided throughout that experience that had catapulted you to, into different roles in the future? I think it was it was super important, actually. Like, I think, you know, I look back on that time frequently, even though, you know, I was fairly young and university students, they really don't know what you're doing mm -hmm. anywhere. But what what I really learned there is just like that I have an aptitude to learn, that I am naturally curious. I want to figure out how things work and why. And like what the relationship between different pieces of well, anything but business in particular is and how does like a change in one influence the change in the other. And then when I started to come to the understanding that like, oh, that's what you can do in a business or that's what you can do if you've got exposure to, you know, finance or accounting or whatever, it became pretty appealing. And I, I definitely think back to to that quite frequently in a lot of the conversations that I had with, you know, these two people in, in particular, just, you know, understanding their backgrounds and like neither of them were, you know, trained entrepreneurs. It was just mm -hmm. something that they they jumped into and, and were tremendously successful at and had, you know, well-balanced lives. That was something that I wanted to do as well. So it was, yeah, absolutely hugely influential. I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for them. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And so uh, on that pathway, you've kind of went through the experience of more traditional corporate structures. And eventually you kind of land yourself in, a, in the world of tech. So one thing I'd love to ask, and I think uh, a lot of people have some difficulty transitioning with this, is going from the corporate side to more of a startup side. So what would you say was your biggest challenge when kind of experiencing that change? Totally. So like my career kind of got it, larger companies to smaller companies, which is a little bit of a, a different trajectory in some ways. And I think the biggest challenge with that is going from like, being part of an army of accountants with like a full FP&A or, you know, financial planning team there to support operations and just the scale of the function in a large organization versus like going to be, you know, the third hire at Tidy was a, yeah. a bit different. So having to figure out, you know, a way to work with what you've got. And then also like, how do you get what you need without that sort of army of, of, uh, accountants to to support it right so that that i think is a huge change and i see that as a challenge with a lot of sort of cfos or or controllers that make a shift from a large organization to a small is they just struggle with wearing so many different hats and mm -hmm. having to really think critically about absolutely everything that they do um and really be creative in how to get the information that you need to make the right decisions yeah and would you say like i kind of made that shift going from public accounting into a startup where I was like first finance hire for a couple of times. <laughs> um, the first experience I obviously had, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, hey, help me build the dashboard. Help me do all this stuff. I was just like, like I just used Googling to do audit and kind of book. <laughs> exactly. That's, that, that's what the experience was. But <laughs> I, I think you alluded to this earlier, this aptitude towards learning. I yeah. think there is a specific fit for an individual who might have a finance background making that transition into startup. Do you feel like there are certain qualities that you need to make that transition successful? You obviously might have those technical skills like most accountants do, but there are certain intangibles I feel like are very, very specific to startup success. So totally. maybe could you help us understand or highlight some of those for us? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right in saying like technical skills. Like Technical skills are wildly important, especially if you're at, you know, a large pubco or like a multinational or, you know, somewhere where compliance is super important. If we're going to be honest with each other at a startup, generally compliance is probably fairly low on the list yeah. of priorities for the finance person. Like, yes, you need to be compliant. Yes, you need to make sure taxes are getting filed. You need to make sure your financial statements are like correct. But in a startup, you're wearing so many different hats. And really the most critical piece is like, managing cash flow, managing your P&L, making sure that the information is being shared with founders, operators, VPs, whoever, in ways that they understand. Um, and you need to get curious and creative about mm. how to 
get that information out. Um, and I think that takes a different set of skills than what you might learn at like a big four as an auditor, you know, as a, as an auditor, you're, you're there reviewing well-prepared financial documents or work, working papers or whatever. But when you're actually there doing the work and, and the outcome is actually not so much about the financial statements, but about like how to run and operate a business, it's an entirely different set of skills. And it takes time to develop that kind of an understanding too. Yeah, no, totally agree. I think there is that transition phase where you need to learn the specific language of a startup, I'd yeah. say. It's completely different. Uh, one of the things I always get from my like kind of corporate accounting friends, it's like, hey, I want to make that transition into tech. The first thing I ask them, hey, like, do you know like some of these like key metrics? Do you understand like what a SaaS business is? Yeah. Do you understand all these kind of things? They're like, not really, not really. but I think I want to make that transition over. So it's just like, hey, let's let's maybe build some foundational skills before we make that transition, because uh, there is a level of confidence that you need going into that role. I feel, and so let's talk about the actual role of a CFO uh, specific to today, because I know it's evolved over time. Uh, there's a lot more technology, a lot more things going on, and I feel like there's this thing where people are saying the CFO has almost become the chief performance officer. Uh, now there's that saying oh, yeah. going. Um, so first of all, fundamentally help us understand what the role of CFO represents and what do you feel like is their biggest responsibility, uh, specific to the use case of a startup? Yeah. It's a, it's funny that you say like the change to chief performance officer. Cause I, I think that actually kind of nailed it is like the role of a CFO is very different than it used to be, but from, and like you know, define the role of a CFO with like how long the piece of string, right? Like it depends. Yeah. <laughs> but at the core, from my perspective, I think like the CFO needs to be the CEO's most trusted advisor, like the other half of their brain. The CFO needs to be the person that's helping find the path through the trees and like spotting icebergs and, and really being there to, to help the CEO execute on their vision. Um, the reason that I say that is it, I think also really depends who the other key players in leadership might be, right? You might have some companies that have, you know, people that are well-versed in finance so that you can be more operational as a CFO, or you could have organizations where like operations doesn't really actually understand finance. So you need to really lean into like operating metrics, what mm -hmm. you're doing from a pricing strategy perspective and, and a lot more non-traditional CFO type responsibilities. But I think like Truly, the the responsibility of the CFO is to to be there for the CEO to make sure that the business runs as optimally as it can. And I think that there needs to be a lot of flexibility as a CFO in order to execute and deliver on that effectively. And I think that's probably why some like more traditional accountants really struggle as CFOs yeah. in startups. It's like whatever someone lit on fire, you have to figure out that day. It's HR. It's IT, it's compliance, it's tax, it's ops, it's everything. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fully loaded. And I yeah. think a lot of people don't have those expectations. They think like, hey, I just have to do the month end close, maybe yeah. you pull up some KPIs or stuff like that. No, you learn a lot more beyond the role of finance. And uh, I think the biggest thing to your point, that right hand person, I think the evolution that one of the core skill sets I feel like a lot of people don't experience like during their corporate roles, as, at least not at a senior level, uh, is like that communication that you have to have across different departments, Yeah, uh, you know, alignment across budgets or, hey, marketing team, how we're performing across like ROI of different metrics. There's so many different components I feel like the CFO at a startup has uh, and has evolved over time. And so could you maybe elaborate on your experience at Tiny? Because I'd love to hear that story of maybe how you also first met the team, but also kind of how you establish yourself as being that right-hand person. Totally. So the, the sort of transition to Tiny was interesting because I was um, looking to, starting to think about moving back to Victoria and was thinking about what opportunities there were there. So I reached out to a buddy of mine from university and, you know, he connected me to Andrew and Chris, when they were actually hiring mm -hmm. for, for Dribble, and it was quite funny is, you know, in the first 10 minutes of my call with Chris, he's like, ah, I don't think you're right for the job. I'm like, well, that's direct. And like, wonderful. Thanks for not wasting our time. <laughs> sounds great. And he's like, no, no, we're actually like starting this other thing where it's sort of the parent co for all of these subs. You know, we have a bit of a different model, but like a lot of my experience was really the consolidation top co 
side anyways versus being being sort of in the in the weeds in a a subsidiary mm-hmm. um and when he said that i was like well that's actually like a way better job so yeah let's do it um and when i stepped into to tiny we had you know a few a few port coasts at that time like it was sort of you know four four major companies and dribble had just been acquired and my job to start with was really just getting to know the CEOs and I think really building a transparent relationship with the CEOs to to support them and giving them what they needed to operate. In some cases, that would be like helping them hire a finance team or helping them, you know, understand what there might be as far as risks in their business or have those kind of transparent conversations as well. And kind of going back to the question is, you know, how how did how did I set myself up for success that way is, is really developing a strong relationship with people and building a relationship of of trust and demonstrating that like you're not there to mess with their business or mess with their shit or whatever but there to help in whatever way is meaningful to them and very sort of like honestly and genuinely i think is is how i always approach building that relationship and it served me very well at tiny and it continues to serve me well now and the work that i do with founders is being able to be that trusted advisor and them to know that anything they tell you is an absolute confidence and whatever the outcome, there will be a benefit to having a conversation, whether we solve the problem in one go or whether we sort of start to lay the groundwork to address the challenge is kind of part of it. Mm-hmm. No, totally agree with you. And so would you kind of highlight some of those best practices that have allowed you to be successful? So we talked about this just before this uh, around the idea of how a startup CFO or kind of an early portfolio CFO has to work with multiple different departments with multiple different personalities and try to align financial success with the company's overall strategy. So given your experience, what have you found being like a framework or strategy that was most successful in making sure everyone's aligned? Yeah, I think a process is a big part of it. I know that process can sometimes be a bit of a bad word in startups as well, mm-hmm. but being really mindful about how you approach process and why, like, why do you do the work that you do or why do you need information from just different business units? Yep. Being really clear with those business unit leaders in the why, I think is incredibly helpful in getting them on board with whatever the ask is. You know, as finance, we often ask a lot of other departments and usually it's on top of the work that they're already doing to try to actually just do their job. Right. Um, so working with them to come up with a solution as far as like, I need this information from your department. How's the best way to get it? You get into like, why do I need it first? Is there something better? Is there something that I haven't thought of as the finance person coming in here and asking marketing for their like ROAS or whatever? And then working with that person to understand, oh, you actually look at it this way. Then maybe I should look at it that way too, because I'm not the one that's actually running the department but yeah. I metrics that matter to you because if they matter to you, they matter to the organization. So having a collaborative sort of opportunity to go through that together, I think is is incredibly helpful. And then also just, again, like process is doing the same thing kind of every month, making sure it's on the same timeline, being really clear with expectation both ways as well. I mean, often people ask finance lots of questions. So if you're expecting them to be responsive to you, you need to be just as responsive to them. Yeah. Um, but I think that's kind of one of the 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 big pieces from an operating operating perspective, but then as far as best practice goes in a startup, the most important thing that you do is watch your cash flow. Yeah, no, totally agree. And we'll get into the kind of the yeah. financial health of the startup and kind of your best practices that you've utilized. Um, I'd love to maybe dive into the incentive side of things. So um, specifically, when we think about sales and marketing, they are incentivized based off certain performance, right? And how as a finance professional do you come to a like good middle ground how does that negotiation typically work for you in making sure that one the company is kind of aligned from that financial side of things but two their the sales and marketing team are incentivized enough to keep their morale up yeah. and to incentivize the right motion that's one of the things that i feel like a lot of startups struggle with uh so i'd love your kind of feedback on that Totally. And it's a good question. And it's something that, you know, I still spend a lot of my time talking to to people about as well. And it's it's one of those ones, again, like, I don't know that there's like one size fits all. It really mm-hmm. depends on what the outcome you're trying to motivate is. 
right? So making sure that you've got the appropriate alignment for incentives and making sure that you're you're empowering the person to actually execute on what's going to drive the outcome that you want. So like sales and marketing is obviously such a clear one, um, but you need to find the balance is you need to make yeah. sure that you're not like killing your unit economics by having too much of a sales uh, commission associated with it. So it, it is about balance and it's looking at, you know, what, what can, excuse me, what can our margin support? What is reasonable in this, this position? What is reasonable for market in this area, like doing market research certainly helps a lot because you better believe that your marketing team or your sales team is going to be doing the exact same thing and coming back right. high. <laughs> yep. So being prepared the same way and also just being fair too, right? Is is recognizing that like, yeah, sales and marketing is often a huge expense. But if you're trying to grow top line specifically, Sometimes you need to make that investment Yeah, that sort of like ties into it too, is thinking about, well, what's the long-term strategy and vision for the company? Like, do we want top line or do we want bottom line growth? Mm -hmm. Finding the balance between the two. Um, and then the other thing is to keep motivation is like, don't have a cap. I think that yeah. capped incentives often sort of work against you in the end. You leave a lot on the table as an organization because what's the motivation to keep going if you cap? Yeah. Someone's caught. Yeah. Um, I really like your second point around the cap. I think yeah. there is a very like, I guess it's a traditional finance thing where, you know, we have to know the certain budget. Gotta know. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> have to know yeah. like where, what's your OTE? What's your like max cap? And I feel like if you really do outperform and like you have a killer year. Yeah. Like why not? Cause my top line is going to grow just as much and I'm incentivizing you to stay and keep us like in that position of growth. So uh, I, I actually like your point because like you're kind of the rare finance person that has that belief. Um, so that's refreshing. It's, it's, like it's all about alignment, right? And like if they continue to perform and like absolutely knock it out of the park for the company, companies getting paid, like shouldn't they get paid too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally agree. Totally agree. So I love that. I love that. And so um, I want to maybe just like, knock it back a bit and then talk about how the CFO role has evolved. Uh, there's so many pieces of technology out there now. Uh, a lot of us finance folks have always lived in Excel. I feel like yeah. we still, majority of the time, still do. Uh, yep. There are tools that basically are a digital Excel. Uh, I'd say like those FP&A tools, it's just like a glorified Excel on steroids. Totally. Um, but over time, specifically related to that role, uh, what are your kind of thoughts on how these new tools that are available to finance teams are going to impact us? And are any thoughts specifically around AI? Because that's like the hot, fun topic right now that everyone's talking about. It, love this question. Like AI and finance, what's it going to mean? What's going to yeah. happen? Like I'm, I wish I had a crystal ball right now because I'm so curious. I think it's it's going to be one of those things where there there are going to be an explosion of tools and and there's going to probably be a reduction in work at the junior level but what i'm really curious about that i'm like want to know your take on this too mm -hmm. is what happens in 10 years when you don't have juniors that have learned how to actually analyze and challenge assumptions and think really critically about a right. business like if we look at our careers so far it's like we've gotten to where we are because we've had that time like in the weed, understanding it and really developing sort of a bit of an intuition or a sense around where you need to be paying attention. If you don't have the ability to sort of learn that and like develop that scar tissue, what happens in 10 years when no one has that? I'm right. really curious, right. right? Like AI can do a lot for sure, but like, can it, maybe this is me having a bias. I don't know. Yeah. So my take on that specifically, and I've been debating this with a few like VC friends of mine as well yeah. recently. Um, and so I think more so like AI should be more of an enabler rather yeah. than something that replaces you. So I think um, if anything, AI is something that we use to one, speed the process up that we have in terms of our existing kind of day to day. Um, so I think the challenge is going to be for individuals that are junior yeah. A lot of their work technically is going to be replaceable because totally. a lot of their stuff is data input, just put things together yeah. as a presentation. So I do fundamentally feel like there's going to be a challenge or kind of this friction uh, when it comes to hiring and kind of 
um, the growth of future finance professionals yeah. because they don't get those repetitions or there's not enough opportunities because let's be realistic with any piece of technology, there are, you know, jobs lost and kind of maybe new things created. So I think what may happen is some of those finance professionals, they might not go into like careers like FP&A or stuff like that. There might be roles in AI like ethics or yeah. something along those lines where, you know, you can't really develop an AI to <laughs> create some ethics code because that's <laughs> like a, you know, conflict of interest, right? Yeah. So I think like you, there's that issue, I, I guess, from more of a junior level. I don't personally feel like you'll ever be able to replace a senior level no. CFO. That individual is just a very strong decision maker. And at the end of the day, I wouldn't personally trust an AI to make fundamental decisions no. for the direction of my company or strategy. I just want to use it as a tool to make my life easier. And that's it. You can't right. replace communication and fundamental sound decision making, um, at least not in the near term. So we'll see what that looks like. But that's my personal take on it. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like the sort of what you were saying with the you know, it, it's an an enabler. We'll probably reduce the number of you know junior staff that you need and and the work that they're doing. But like, that's how you learn. So, yeah. Although at the same time, this is then the flip side. Me being a bit of a contrarian to my own point is looking at you know analysts in when the Bloomberg Journal terminal mm -hmm. came out. They don't calculate bond yields anymore. It doesn't make them any yeah. worse at their job. Not necessarily. I mean. Depends. Yeah. Looking at the markets and what's going on right now, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you just transfer skills and maybe adopt yeah. something else, right? So I think if you, at least this is my vision for if you want to be successful in finance, really learn how to communicate effectively and digest totally. information uh, rather than just knowing how to put things together or like use a tool. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be the real selling point. It's just like, how does X connect with Y equals Z? And yeah. what's the fundamental impact of that? If you can explain that to me in a very digestible way from a CEO, your value is like that much higher to me. Yeah. Um, and so, I, yeah, one thing I always talk to young professionals about is like the tools are always going to be there and evolving. Yeah. So like don't invest all your time on yeah. being this expert tool person because yeah. you don't need to be an expert in like Excel, like this wizard in Excel. You just need to know like, you know, above average kind of skills. Yeah. But you really do need to learn how to communicate. And that takes reps totally. uh, over time. Totally. And like learn to be curious too. Yes. I yeah. totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. So let's make a pivot and actually st start talking about the finance world at a startup. So, you know, fundamentally, you talked about this early on where, you know, uh, cash flow is king uh, at a startup, although obviously it's really burn, not uh, cash flow. Um, so, yeah, yeah, managing cash uh, is yeah. kind of the biggest aspect. So before we get into that, let's talk about funding. Uh, with most startups, you need funding to grow and kind of accelerate. In kind of your experiences, what kind of strategies did you employ to help secure funding and or manage the financial health uh, of that specific company? So I think like maybe splitting yeah, funding from financial health. I mean, it's obvious. Obviously, they're very correlated. Um, funding is is interesting. Definitely a hot topic right now. Securing funding is very high on everyone's list. Capital was cheap for the last few years, and funding mm -hmm. was very readily available. So I think what was true, you know, eighteen months ago doesn't necessarily hold true anymore. Is a lot of investors don't really want to see the hockey stick. Yeah. Anymore. They want to see reality. They want to see path to sustainability and path to cash flow in a lot of situations. I think that, you know, things are starting to really change and that you always need to pitch your business when you're going into that, when you're doing a raise and you got to you have to be the biggest hype person. Right. But yeah. at the same time now, I think you also have to be realistic and saying like, you know, here are the areas of opportunity that we have yet to explore. You know, we can kind of quantify what that looks like, but at the same time, being really realistic and aware of where, what you know now and what you can actually deliver on. Because I think that more important than just this current raise is like, if you need to go back in 18 to 24 months is how you've actually executed in that time frame. Have you yeah. delivered on 
what you said you were going to do. Like coming into a race now with that kind of a mindset is like, where do you expect to be in 24 months? When do you need money again? What's the story that you need to have executed on and delivered to actually be able to be successful in a, a follow along round? I think should be a priority when you're looking at what you're doing now. Because um, everything that you put out there with an early, earlier round is definitely going to come back to haunt you. Yeah. And yeah. If you missed all your targets, but you didn't pivot, and you're not going to get funding again. Yeah. Um, versus if you actually put something out that is realistic, even if you deliver on you know, 80% of it, that's pretty solid. The likelihood of being able to be successful in a subsequent raise is going to be higher. It's just needing to think longer term now more than ever. And what groundwork you're doing and what you're laying now uh, to build towards what you want to be in the next sort of like three to five years kind of thing, I think is really critically important when you're going out to raise right now. Got when it. When you five years in a startup, everyone's like, well, that's just made up nonsense. Yeah, sure. Kind of. But at the same time, it's like you, you need to have a path. You got to work backwards from where you want to be in order to actually deliver on something. Totally agree with you. And so one of the things I think, um, let's uh, specific to founders, I think they've grown to have such a strong appetite towards funding that they fundamentally forget about at the end of the day, a business is supposed to be profitable uh, eventually. Uh, and you can't just rely on funding all the time. So do you feel like there is going to be a transition with founding teams, at least from philosophical standpoint, where now they're actually thinking about, you know, we have to change kind of that mindset. Do you feel like we will, out of this kind of period of time, find more successful businesses and entrepreneurs versus the last, I'd say, couple years where we've had a zero interest rate environment, billions of dollars thrown yeah. at companies that have just dissolved uh, really quickly because their unit economics made absolutely no sense. I'm actually pretty curious. I like you're you're speaking my language there a hundred percent. Like financial yeah. sustainability and like having a real business is so important to me. Most of the companies that I work with, they're companies that I I know can be a real business without major intervention and major mm -hmm. cash. VC cash would be great, it would make it go a lot faster and make them be a lot bigger, but they have the ability to cash flow and yeah. to realize profit and be you know businesses that could persist into the future i think i mean i hope that that's the direction i think for the last sort of five years or so the vc model has been quite broken i think a lot of companies were funded that shouldn't have ever been funded yeah. the idea that you can you know raise at a 10 mil val on a, based on an idea you wrote down on a napkin with absolutely no traction or indication of what you're going to do is ludicrous. And yeah. it can work with certain founders. Let's like temper that a little bit. But for the most part, it's just not reality. And it shouldn't be either. Like there are so many phenomenal businesses out there that can make a big impact and have, you know, a long, long future, but they're just not quote unquote BC fundable because they're not a unicorn moonshot. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're not necessarily, you know, sexy high growth businesses that are going to eat an entire corner of the market. But yeah. I'd rather invest in something that I have high conviction in. Yeah, a nice base hit uh, and a business that's going to be around for 20 years versus like a moonshot personally. Yeah, I, I classically always kind of look at the uh, VC versus PE example. Yeah. PE, PE folks, obviously the later stage company typically uh, and has a baseline, but they always work towards a profitability standpoint and a return. That's usually not 100x. It's usually exactly. a couple X. Yeah. Um, and fundamentally, they do return money, yeah. whereas the VC model is completely different, where obviously based on kind of how their math works, only, you know, the power laws, uh, yeah. one out of maybe 10 are successful, let's just say. Um, that's not and they, like you, like you expect 90% to just die. Like those are, yeah. those are people's lives that you're talking about. You know, they're exactly. are pouring themselves into things and then you end up like stuck on this VC vine that you can't get off of. Cause like, they're not going to let you go because you never know. And then yeah. as a business, yeah. you're totally hamstrung and stuck because you've got you gave up a board seat, you gave up too much of your company and you can't do anything about it, but they're not letting you go and they're just letting you die. Yeah. Yeah. So 
let's let's actually talk about that because a lot of founders are actually experiencing and going through this right now. Yes. So they either have to go through a down round or a flat round because their last valuation was crazy as it is. Yeah. Right. And now they're running out of money because they obviously never thought about profitability. Uh, they just thought about growth at all costs. Yeah. And so what is your piece of advice for a founder maybe going through this? Oh, maybe dear. having to have to go through a recap or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and how do you manage those expectations with your investor? Let's just say it's the lead investor because they're going to have a preferential kind of um, outlook on who to kind of support versus not. Yeah. Um, but they might lead you on kind of thing. Oh, totally. Um, so like how, how, what, what's your best piece of advice for a founder going through this right now? Oh gosh, it's so hard. Uh, get a good lawyer, go through all of your documents to see what your options are. Yeah, uh, probably step one, or you know, have have an advisor of some variety go through and really understand like how tied to this VC are you? What are their rights? Where do you have the ability to operate without their involvement or engagement? Um, in a lot of cases, there's not a lot that you can do. Yeah, uh, my biggest piece of advice and it's really hard to pull off is actually try to find someone that's going to buy the VC out and at least, at least put some cash in their pocket hard to yeah. do but probably yeah. the one that's going to cause you the least grief and pain but it's so hard when you've sold your soul to a VC like yeah those term sheets come with teeth they're they've done it a million times and they they know what pound of flesh they're seeking and right it's, it's just it's so hard so like as far as advice goes for someone that is in that position is find someone that's going to be in your corner and help you fight like hell to get them off your cap table try to do a recap try to try to get them out of the way in a lot of cases i wouldn't say like try to re-engage and get them excited about your story i think if they're already being like fundamentally misaligned mm -hmm. yeah you just you want to try to do your best to get them gone yeah, and find, and find someone that that sees you as like a long term sustainable business. It's mm -hmm. just not a VC play that will buy them out. That right. exists. It's you know it's part of the the pitch that Andrew makes frequently. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And so maybe help us also understand how how do you define a good investor? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, uh, a good investor. I think it depends on the company to a certain degree too. Good investor for someone can be like someone that just like shuts up takes their hands off, lets you do whatever you need to do until yep. they trust you to run the business. Uh, and then for some, it's also, you know, someone that's actually hands-on and can be there as a thought partner as well. So I think a good investor is someone that meets your needs as an organization. And this is something that I tell people when they're going through the fundraising process. As, you know, as the company is thinking really critically about what do you want from an investor? What is a good investor to you? And a good investor is like whatever sort of meets those criteria, right? From my perspective, I think it's someone that meets the needs of the organization where they are versus forcing the investor's perspective on them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like a bad investor might be sort of easier to define than a good investor, a bad investor that like really comes in and, you know, fucks everything up for yeah. the company, yeah. which is totally possible. Yeah. And just someone that's fundamentally misaligned with what the outcome of the organization is. I think yeah. as an investor, you can be incredibly supportive when things get hard. You know, those, yeah, those I, are the people that you want on your cap table. Yeah, totally agree. And I think one of the things that I always tell founders is like, don't think about like VCs as like the, like, you know, they're, they're smart people, but they're in their roles for a very specific reason. And yeah. so one of the things I always try to get founders to reflect on is like, has that individual on the other side ever built something or gone through the same or shared the struggle as you? Because I know there are VCs that are former operators, former founders that totally understand and probably understand and have that relationship with you that could be stronger versus, hey, I'm from investment banking. I'm just making, saving myself like, you know, a couple hours a week because I don't want to work in banking anymore. Now I'm a VC. Yeah. Uh, that type who has never really built a business and practically only worked with like large organizations on deals. Totally. Right? So total separation in terms of context. I don't know how supportive they are beyond like maybe strategy and kind of like the number side. Yeah. Um, so there is that context I always try to share is like, you know, look at the profile of the individual you're talking to as well, not just because, hey, that VC has a brand or whatever, exactly. um, or you're desperate for money. If you're desperate for money, that's another problem as a whole. But um, 
yeah, there's a lot of different things, I think. Depends how desperate you are. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Well, and they, um, like, also look at the profile of the portfolio. And yeah, yeah. is the portfolio representative of, you, uh, representative of you as a company? And then also, like, have the VC connect you with people in the portfolio, talk to the portfolio and see what their experience is like. It's a major red flag if the VC is like, oh, no, you can't talk to each other. That's like, well, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a that's a big one for me as well. So, you know, uh, we've been talking about this whole funding thing as well. And typically in the US, we don't really have issues with funding. You can typically find an investor or an angel or small VC. There's a lot of them out there. Yeah. But if I look at north of the border, one of the biggest challenges we have in early stage specifically is getting funding for, our, you know, our early stage companies, our early stage innovation. And it's pretty well documented, like in our last quarter, specifically, I think it was 20, either 22 or 21 of like this, uh, sorry, 23 Q1, that our funding fell by like 80% or 70%, something really wild. Yeah. Right. And obviously some of it's due to kind of the interest rate environment, all that kind of stuff makes sense. But why do you feel like there is such a limitation when it comes to funding available for early stage? companies because that's usually the catalyst needed to kind of help support that company to you know scale or grow yeah. to hire so what about the canadian ecosystem is like so fundamentally wrong and how do we maybe change that it's it's an interesting question right because i i kind of i see well i see two things with this like one is is the investment in early stage companies i think there's a lot of government support for yeah. early stage companies and Canadian innovation, um, which can be phenomenal for some non-dilutive capital. Um, I think that our angel community is quite strong in Canada, but I kind of almost feel like there's a little bit of a gap from sort of like series A, B onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder if that may be the product of just our, our sort of like makeup as Canadians, if there's not, there isn't as much, well, how do I say this? There hasn't been as much uh, from a scale perspective in Canada. There haven't yeah. been as many phenomenal exits where there's been like significant amount of wealth generation in Canada. I think that that is often sort of a, a seed for large scale funds. Like you see out of the U.S., if you look at, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, like all of these guys, like they came from major exits from major major companies out of the states we don't see that in canada quite as much and i I suspect Mm. that that might be one of the sort of influencing factors is we haven't seen and it sort of leads me to the next challenge we haven't seen much scale at canada which should then help feed the earlier stage ecosystem and i think that in in my opinion canada actually has more of a scale-up problem than a startup problem we've got a lot of innovation we've got a lot of like really early stage companies but we don't have a lot in that sort of like mid-range scale up or at scale really and i think that that sort of like shift through the ecosystem is what is going to feed back into earlier stage but like if you look at you know large canadian corporations in the tech space and specifically there's not that many we were a small country, but you know, 35 million people or whatever. So compared to the states, like we're uh, a fraction of their size. But even still, like, you know, thinking through some of the major Canadian winners, who do we have? We've got telcos. They're great. Yeah. Some great banks. We've got lots of resources. But what in the tech space do we have as far as like a Canadian darling? Mm-hmm. We, have, we had RIM. How'd that go? Yeah. Yeah. I we mean, Shopify still up for it. Yeah. <laughs> But we don't we don't have as much sort of at scale, large scale exits that are feeding into the the earlier stages of the ecosystem out here. I think that's probably the challenge, and I think it's like it's actually more of a scale up challenge. Very interesting, because um, yeah, one of the things I always get asked when I go down to SF or any of these places, like, hey, how's the how's the Toronto tech scene going, or yeah. what, what, what like what's the big company, what's the next thing? Yeah, and so the first the question I always ask them is like. Name me a company outside of Shopify that you guys know. Exactly. Yeah. They have zero clue. Zero. Like yeah. literally zero clue. And so like, I guess to your point, that whole scale up issue, there's not enough larger organizations or larger startups that we do have um, that kind of support that local ecosystem beyond. So uh, I never really thought of it that way. A lot of it's usually back to, 
hey, you know, risk adverse, we're Canadians, we don't do like early stage as much. I know pre-seed is still a kind of a question here in Canada. Um, And a lot of the founder friends I have, they go to the States, which again, brain drain or kind of transition away from, you know, great companies going to the States for growth. Um, But again, even if I think about the Canadian startups that typically do work out, majority of their customers are from the States anyways. Yeah. Um, and so Which, like, should be a hack for Canadians because like yeah. we can operate here with a 30% discount because we're operating in CAD, but sell into exactly. the States for a premium. So it should be to our benefit, but like, why can't we, why can't we scale the same way? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a question that I've, I keep on wondering about. I just like, there's so many different, I guess, things at play. Totally. Um, it's very kind of, and each province has their own little thing uh, yeah. going on too. Right. So I think, um, that's a fundamental question. I still want to deep dive with a lot of more individuals. So maybe we can get another little round table on this. I was just going to uh, say, like, if you bring, you know, brain threads together, I'd love to hear other people's perspectives on it. Cause I, to your point, like it's such a, a complex sort of challenge. And, and mm-hmm. I think to your point, there's like a lot of different factors at play. I do think that like Canadian politeness and like not particularly competitive nature can play into it a little bit too, but I don't want to just default to that as an answer. Cause I feel like it's such a cop. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it will hopefully we'll see transition over time. Exactly. Um, and and like there's got to be more but for for why it's not happening, because like, you know, government funding for Canadian innovation is tremendous, especially yes. if you compare yeah. it to the state, like between Shred and IRAP and SDTC and like all of these other sort of programs out there. But there's a cap, you know, often yeah. as well, like you, you, you are not eligible for Shred if you get too big, because like, heaven forbid, yeah. you're successful in Canada, you want to support that. But it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting from that perspective. There's lots of yeah. funding pre-rev, but as soon as you start making money, uh, the so wheels it's like, hey, nah, stay small. We like kind of staying low key. I don't exactly. Know. Yeah. I don't know if that's like a government policy or something, but yeah, I, I'd love to maybe we'll, we'll maybe get a group together thinking about that. I'd love that. So yeah, definitely a question to ask. <laughs> um, so another thing I found really interesting about your profile is uh, you are a board member for Tiny and Nano One, and so. You know, uh, as a let's just say as a founder, you you should have a strong relationship with your board members because they're typically your investor and or a strategic advisor that kind of helps you set the direction right for your company. Right. So, uh, again, fundamentally, please help us understand what the role of a board member is and what sort of skills are required to be in that position. Yeah, for sure. So fundamentally. Like if you're getting to the the textbook of it, like in Canada, it's it's a little bit different than the states. Is that you know the Canadian boards are to act for the interests of the corporation ahead of their own, versus in the states, it's the boards are to represent the interests of shareholders. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit nuanced. But like the idea with Canadian governance is that it's supposed to encompass shareholders as part of the corporation too. So you're acting within the best interests of all stakeholders versus just shareholders to a certain degree. Um, now that's like obviously super broad in general, uh, and probably more for a public company rather than a private company too. Yeah. private company, you know, often what you're seeing is, is the board is there to, to support the corporation, support the appropriate sort of growth and trajectory of it to make sure that it's performing the way it could be and should be. Um, and as far as like what, what skills are required to be a board member, I think it's objectivity and being able to remove yourself from a position of conflict and think really independently from your own interests, right? Mm -hmm. So as a board member in a private company, to your point, you're often a shareholder. So you have to sort of shelve that when you're helping make decisions or or coming to a decision as a board um, to to think really critically about what the best outcome for the organization is versus yourself. Um, That sort of ability to separate i think is mm-hmm. it's, is one of the biggest pieces it's i've seen it on some private company boards where you see that people are unable to separate that and i right. don't think that makes you a particularly good board member i mean it, it's great for outcomes but at the same time you potentially hampering the the opportunity that a company has if you're making a decision for yourself as a shareholder um and the other piece as well is is just being able to to think critically and to think in a way that is, you know, poking holes in in 
items that are being brought to you. So the way it sort of works is like a decision is often brought to the board and the board approves it and moves on, right? But sometimes it warrants further discussion and thinking about like, well, is that actually the best course of action? You don't want to get down into the details to start solving the problem or like pulling the levers in the organization. That's not the role of the board at all. The board is here as an oversight body. But in that vein, you can say, well, this is what's been presented to us. This is my understanding of it. And then typically the organization can go away and think more critically about those pieces if it's relevant. Or the CEO can also say, well, like, yeah, we did like sign it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so when it comes to those founder board member relations, yeah, that's a very common environment for disagreement. Um, <laughs> I guess it's also very well documented. Like, I'm not sure if you've seen that, like a small series with Uber. Um, no, I forgot I what it was yet. called. It's yeah. so good. It's so good. So the one thing that I always get into mind when, you know, founders have disagreements with their board, it's not as serious. I guess Travis Kel- Kelnick lives uh, Bob <laughs> Gurley kind of thing. But uh, there are it's bound to happen at one point in time. Right. Yeah. So. Um, what would you say are best practices to manage communications uh, yeah. from both parties? Yeah, I think that's a, a, it seems like our conversation is really coming back to communication more than yeah. people wouldn't expect that from like a couple of finance nerds, right? But like finance and communication, it's critically important, but uh, it's, it's setting appropriate expectations and just being transparent on both sides of the coin. As a founder, you never want to support surprise your board with a bad quarter. Like mm-hmm. you shouldn't you shouldn't come to them, you know, a month after a challenge and say like, yep, this is where we're at. It should and them being surprised. Anytime that someone is surprised at the board level, you've missed an opportunity to, right. to communicate more effectively. And the same goes the other way. If some a resolution is brought to the board and the board does not approve it, that should not be a surprise to management too. Like if you are in a position where those things are happening, you've got a dysfunctional relationship right. between board and management. And that's something that requires attention to fix. Because you can't get a lot done if you have that degree of functionality, right? Yeah. Especially like in a pub co private companies are different. There's a, a lot sort of less rigor around maintaining that segregation between governance and operations. Because mm-hmm. you can have an operating board for a private company. Like you, you can have that be the set of expectations. It's just as long as it's clear that that's how you want to function as an organization. Um, and as far as disagreements go, like, yeah, they're bound to happen. But that's also why you typically would have, you know, a founder maintaining a board seat and having right. a lot of people on the board. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, communication, everyone. It's such an yeah. important skill. It's universal just... across whatever role you work yeah. in. It's like... Like no that skill yeah. 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 Okay, cool. So Carla, that's like the bulk of like I say, like the nitty gritty finance stuff. One thing I always like to kind of add into the podcast, it's kind of a philosophical piece where I ask you a bit of more, you know, personal questions so I get to know you a bit better. Uh-oh. So <laughs> I wanted to start off that piece with um, how do you define happiness? It's such a deep question and like deeply personal too i think for like it's such a good question i think for me happiness is is flexibility Mm. like flexibility to explore and be curious and have time to sit down and think about a problem or think about whatever it probably sounds a little bit weird and like it's just about work but like i think that like that applies to everything to me is having that sort of flexibility and time to to really pursue whatever it is that I am curious about in that moment. Uh, that's sort of where I are, where I am happiest anyways. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's totally fair. And again, I guess everyone has their own definition and it's personal to them. What's right? yours? Uh, so me personally, I think it's, uh, I think for me, it's just like, I have to do something that's fulfilling. Yeah. Um, that's kind of, I guess, I guess it's cliche as cliche can get, but you know, I have to be like kind of passionate about what I'm doing and it also has to fulfill me. So on the inside, it's just like I have a purpose towards what I'm doing rather than I'm just doing it just because, you know, it's for some extra money or whatever. Yeah. That's not something that usually typically will help me be happy. So usually kind of like this example right here, one of the things that fundamentally give me a lot of energy is talking to uh, new individuals, learning from them. 
because I have this natural curiosity. So this never feels like work. And at the end of the time, um, throughout that day, I feel like really high energy, just like it really makes me happy. Just because totally. I'm like, oh, I learned something new. I built a new relationship. Yeah. And that's kind of like what gets me going, right? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so next one, what is something that most folks don't know about Carla or often get wrong? It's funny. I was thinking about this one. See, you sent me this in advance. I yeah. It, and I, I asked a couple of people and I think I'm kind of a bit of an open book. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Like most, most people, I don't feel like I have many, you know, deep, dark secrets really. And I think most people are surprised how much I, uh, like to shut off. Like most people sort of assume that I'm a bit of a workaholic, but like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I like my own free time. I like my own downtime and I'm not always working, which some people yeah. get confused about. And then also I think it kind of ties into like what I do. I love what I do. Though it doesn't really feel like work, I guess. And and most people sort of assume that I'm like stressed out and, you know, burning the candle at both ends. But like, I feel like I've got a pretty balanced life and I have been able to craft it in a way that I really enjoy. And I don't feel like I am, uh, you know, always grinding. I like for now. Like, I'm right. Yeah, I know. The, the background's super nice. Yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I aspire to definitely do that one day um, for sure, where it's kind of combination of, um, philosophically just kind of flexibility having yeah. that kind of peace of mind yeah. um you don't have to drain yourself the whole time i know a lot no. of people do but that's their choice right so um i'd like to maybe get your also thoughts on this i think we live in a world now where if you don't hustle or have this like you don't work all the time you're almost seen as like not good enough it's like, like lazy yeah. yeah lazy or it's just like what are you doing with your life kind of thing? yeah Totally. Like why, why do you feel like we've, we've gotten to this point? Is it like social media or is it like, you know, I guess like these uh, personalities on like the CEOs or like these, all that? Like, what, what do yeah. you feel like is that thing that's kind of shifted us to that thought process? Like hustle culture is such a can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's probably personalities, right? It's like, mm. you know what you see on Twitter or what you see on like Instagram or TikTok or, or wherever you're consuming content, it, it's all about the hustle. It's all about like, you know, grinding super hard and, and always looking for like that extra buck or whatever, or doing something for someone else. Yeah. That's where you're getting motivation. And I feel like now this is maybe going like way philosophical, but like, I wonder if it, because we actually don't have community the same way that we right. used to, is that, you know, you're very consuming this content and seeing it in a, a very sort of like short snapshot. You don't actually see someone's downtime anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like it just got weird to be normal. Um, yeah. Like it's, chill. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I don't know what happened. But yeah, that's one thing I always ask myself. Like, when did it become weird to be normal? Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I don't need to be like the most highly profile, like head of finance at a company or in the world or something. No. Like, I I could just be me and just like do me, right? So yeah, but that's really like have agenda an agenda for the podcast other than just like connecting with people that you want to talk to, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So it's I don't know. It's um, it's different. Um, last question here: What do you want to be remembered for? I want to be remembered for being kind. That's like incredibly cliche, yeah. but it's it's that's what's most important to me. I want people to. You know, if I, when I'm gone, look back and say like, oh, yeah, she was a good person. Like she was yeah, she yeah. was kind and she was like generous with her time. And yeah, that's yeah. pretty much it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No, kind people do great things. Um, one of those examples is this podcast today. So, again, thank you so much, Carla. We'll finish off with a quick lightning round. So very quickly four uh, questions. First one, dinner with one person dead or alive? My grandfather, who I never met. Oh. Sentimental. Love it. Um, favorite book or movie of all time? Paradox of Choice by Barry Schwartz. Oh, Highly recommend. Okay, yeah. I'll put that on my list. I have such a long list of books <laughs> to read. Imagine with that question. Like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, best piece of advice you've ever received? Shoot your shot. And take your chance. Sweet. And then last one. It's a controversial one. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? 100%. Okay. Well, I'm on the party that says no. But oh, uh, no. we'll, we'll still be friends. Pizza. 
Yeah, we'll still be friends. You know, you can always like have half and half uh, on a pizza, right? So we'll do that. Um, yeah, thank you so much again for the experience, Carla. Any last words for our audience and maybe how a founder or someone could connect with you? Uh, yeah, um, I guess last last words would be is, you know, thanks for your time specifically. Appreciate it. This is uh, my first podcast. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for making it pretty painless and low stress. Thank um, you. And then for founders out there is if they want to connect with me, email is probably the best. It's just Carla, C-A-R-L-A at csminsights.co. I technically have a website, but I haven't looked at it in months. And my buddy, uh, Matt from AD20, keeps on hassling me to build me a new one. Yeah, for founders, it's just like the work is hard. The work is lonely. Find your people to try to make it as easy as you can. It's, it is tough and it's often glamorized as not being as hard as it is, but it most certainly is one of the hardest jobs in the world. Yeah. Nope. Love it. Thank you so much. And wishing you all the best. Thank you. It was good to chat. Yeah. Looking forward to next okay. time.